The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sunshine, finally, for it to be nice to be able to get here. Thank you for each of the people that were able to make it this morning. Be with those who cannot be with us but are tuning in online. Bless our conversation this morning as we talk about the mission, the point, the purpose of marriage. Would you give us a vision far grander than we can imagine that it would stir our hearts to propel uh, ourselves into our marriages with new life and new vigor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Chapter 4 of the meaning of marriage. And then actually, we're looking at, very briefly at the end, I'll talk about the chapter, The Matrix of Marriage. Who here has this book so far? Great. Great. I'm so, I'm very excited for next, the next three weeks. Because after today, we're going to take, it's actually going to be a perfect little hiatus in the middle of what he's talking about. Uh, in Keller's Meaning of Marriage, and we're going to spend a little bit more in-depth time looking practically about how do we do what we're talking about today. So he starts out in Genesis, or sorry, he starts out in his chapter this morning about revisiting the book of Genesis. We had talked either two or three classes ago about the incredible humility of God that he would make People before sin even entered the world, he would create Adam to not just be fully satisfied in his relationship with God alone. And we said that is kind of staggering and mind-boggling if you think about God who is the author of everything and life and um, our hearts are finding their rest ultimately, as Augustine said, when they find their rest in him. But it's not just him the way we were made for. Uh, he gives people to fulfill something in the lives and the hearts of, of mankind in addition to just their vertical relationship with God, which is kind of an amazing thing if you think about it. And so he creates this woman who is a helper. Remember we talked about how Adam finally sees, after naming all the animals, he sees woman and he bursts out into poetry. I think that he's singing because he finally sees bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. He sees the person that he's truly fit for. This woman is uh, his helper. And that word helper, Keller notes, is, is beyond just kind of a subservient helper. It's actually a word that's used more, in more places in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, for God the Holy Spirit, the helper, which is kind of amazing. So there's great dignity in this uh, creation of Eve and the woman. And it's more than just a helper. It's more than just tasks that they're meant to do. It's also in the sense of a companion, a friend. And that's really the subject of his chapter today. He says, we, yes, we're made ultimately for God, but even at a much, uh, even at a level uh, beyond that, in addition to that, we're made for friendship because we image a triune God. God existed eternally in three persons who, were, who delighted in one another, who poured themselves throughout for one another, and that's the image that we're made for. So in a real true sense, we're incomplete in ourselves. We're incomplete even just with this relationship with God. We need friendships. And so what I'd love to do is just take your brains first with think back to some of the deepest, not in your marriages, but the 
friends that you have in your life and kind of the initial stages of friendship, what was it about that relationship that brought you life and enjoyment? What were some of those things? Take a moment to think about that, and then I actually want, this is not a rhetorical question. Are we supposed to respond? I'm asking for you to respond, yes. So the, the question is, what are the deepest, most meaningful relationships that we have had? Think about the friendships that, that are meaningful in your life, yes. And the first few moments or weeks or months of that relationship, I mean, I'm presuming these relationships have lasted for years, like your deepest friendships. Try to go back to the beginning of that. What was it about that that drew you to this relationship? What was the friendship built up? Sure. Yeah. Or just what? I mean, what did you? What drew you into it? My friendship when we started being friends, like courting as friends, I was so drawn to how um, faithful you were and steadfast, and like talking with you was such a you just. It, like the word of God just kind of fell off your tongue naturally, and I just remember being like, "Wow, this is such a faithful woman. I want to be around that and hear that." And that's that's a friendship to invest in. So that's fine. Yes, it's good. I was thinking of like, you know, I thought when you first asked that, I thought about whole childhood friends, and I was like, "That's nothing." I'm thinking about relationships when we moved here, and I was lonely. You know, I had moved as a new person, and the people who shared my faith, you know, who, who would, you know, it's like you said, Jesus was in the conversation, and I was like, this is a person who's real. There's sheets in the back for you if you'd like. Welcome. And coffee. We're and coffee. Thank you. Yeah. And creamer for this. And what? Creamer. Yes. Amazing. My morale is long lasting. Have not been long lasting, but mine was built on running. Running. You had a common interest. How about that? Yeah. I, I'm so glad some guys are in here. They could be like, it's not just me. Who's like, I know, because I'm sitting here going, you're talking about Christianity. I'm like, there's no virtuous answer. We're talking about some of the friendships that we've had over life. What was it that drew you into that friendship? Someone that wanted to spend time with me. Someone that sought me out. And it was comfortable. And it, it was fun. Someone that I enjoy spending time with. And as we've gotten to know one another more, we've found more that we have in common with one another from our faith to our marriages to our, you know, how we approach life and children and parenting. But sometimes it can be as simple as, oh, you like coffee too? Oh, hi. Mm-hmm. That's the best be for him. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> it could be something as simple, yeah, as. In, as I wouldn't say trivial as coffee, but as important. No, no. Any other things? And as you think about the lasting friendships you've had, that kind of the things that drew you into that relationship.
Y'all have clearly either read the chapter and like expounded on it. This is like almost, this is incredible because he gives, I mean, even if you didn't read it, it came up that it is, he he mentions three common themes in terms of friendships. You've got constancy, what you're saying, always kind of there, they're dependable, reliable. It starts with that. Secondly, he talks about like there's a transparency and I love this quote, uh, it's from he quotes it from Dinah Maria Moluk Crake is her name. The inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with another person, having neither to weigh thoughts or measure words, but pouring them all right out, just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take them and sift them, keeping what is worth keeping, and then the breath of kindness blow the rest away. I love that, that you don't have to censor yourself among your friends. There is a transparency, and that works both ways. Like, you can be yourself, they can see you, and yet also they see you, and they make you into this better person, and you, and vice versa. You're, you have this relationship where you're given that sort of trust and ability to, to speak into it. And they, so there's constancy, he talks about, like, transparency and candor, and then a third thing, which is... Um, he uses the word sympathy, but in a very technical sense, because it's common passion. So coffee or a show. Something, it could be as trivial as something like that, but it usually starts there and grows. Not coffee's trivial, but the show's <laughs> trivial. That's what I'm saying. No. Um, and so I love what he talks about when, you know, he really is so drawing from C.S. Lewis in this, because Lewis talks about friends, you can't, like, force it. It, they, they're only discovered. And there's this amazing quote from C.S. Lewis that uh, the essence of friendship is coming alongside somebody and looking at something and kind of going, oh, you too? I thought I was the only one that liked that. And I, I love that image of what friendship is. And, it's, and it taps into this truth that true friendship can only happen when there's a shared interest. It has to be going somewhere. It has to be beyond just the relationship. It can't just be about the relationship. It has to have another goal in mind. And this is what Lewis says. He speaks. He doesn't mince words. He says, this is why those pathetic people who simply, quote, want friends can never make any. The condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth would be, I see nothing and I don't care about truth, I only want a friend. 
There's, there can be no friendship that arises there, though affection, of course, may. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about, and friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice or coffee or TV shows. Those who have nothing can share nothing, and those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. That's from C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. It really nails what we're talking about here. And so if Keller in this chapter is talking about what's the point, what's the goal of marriage, in some sense, it's about marrying and becoming best friends with someone. And he chooses those words specifically over and over, like you actually need to be or on the way to becoming best friends. And we'll unpack that in a little bit. And so there's these same transparency and constancy and common interests that you can have with non-Christians, but when you're a Christian and you have this, you could have nothing else in common but, but your faith in Jesus, there is deep, deep friendship that can arise from that. And in and, and Christian marriage, there is the pinnacle of that friendship. So if you think about on a Christian level, transparency, we're called to confess our sins to one another, to point out the sins in our friends if she or he is blind to them. And if you've been married, you know that just happens, right? We do that all the time. And there's a goodness to that. You don't just kind of, if you didn't care, and we say this to our kids all the time, if we didn't care about you, if we didn't love you, we would do nothing, right? And God does the same thing. He cares about us, and so he makes us uh, into the people he wants us to be. Uh, we're supposed to be constant with one another, to bear our burdens, to encourage one another and build friendships with one another. Uh, he says on page 127, friendship is a deep oneness that develops as two people speaking the truth in love to each other, journey towards the same horizon. They have the same goal. And he talks about, okay, so what is the goal? And if you have a Bible, which I think you do, either with you or in front of you, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. In the New Testament, towards the end, shout out the page number when you get there. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, which I love because it is, well, no, I have, I have Ruth 1 on my ring. What's that? Ephesians 5? 1484. That's in your Bible. No, the Pew Bibles. The Pew Bibles. Right? 1020? Wonderful. 1020. And so... <clears throat> This is where we hear not just what marriage represents, that it's this relationship ultimately about God and his people, the church, uh, but we see the purpose kind of entailed in that, which is part of the purpose of friendship, some of the, what we've already talked about so far. I'm reading from the ESV. Y'all probably have a translation similar to it, but it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So I love English language where you have these words like so that or in order to with that just tell you what the purpose of marriage is. And so what are some of the purposes that you see in these verses of what marriage is? Just shout them out. There's several. 
to be holy and blameless. Wonderful. Sanctified. Sanctified, yeah. That's pretty much it. I think that's great. Sanctify her, cleansing, right? That these are all images of sanctification, which is that fancy Christian word meaning being cleansed, which is part of what God does in us. And the radical thing, I'm just going to say it so I don't forget it, the whole point of marriage is that it is an instrument designed by God to make us holy, to cleanse us individually and one another. And I love what he talks about uh, in a bit when he gets into that. So I, let's, I'm just going to read a quote here from page 132. <clears throat> I think this is really helpful if you're thinking about what it means to fall in love. If you need wisdom and discerning, I, I meet with college students and young adults all the time who are discerning, where can I find my spouse? And this is really, really good stuff. It says, within this Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating. And to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse should give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. That is the purpose of marriage. And it's in weddings, you know, Keller's teaching me so much about what wedding ceremonies are like. When you stand... Remember we talked about the vows and how in our prayer book there's two vows. You actually make a vow to the minister standing, vowing to God. You're making a vow to God. The minister represents God. So the first vow is to God together. And then you vow to one another. So the, the vertical relationship with God is the foundation for the marriage. And then you vow to each other. There's another amazing point that he makes in the wedding ceremony is we get really dressed up, right? And the bride especially white dress and all of the symbolism and i maybe y'all thought about this i just didn't think about it but the image is they're reenacting in in a really small way the beauty and the the purpose of what they're trying to do in this relationship that god is going to use each of them in the lives of the other they're wearing spotless garments beautiful garments and and it's pointing towards this day when they get to heaven and they stand not before just a minister, but God himself in the very throne. And it's not just these outward garments of beauty. It's a soul. It's a personhood. It's, a, it's the inner heart reality of being absolutely pure and radiant. That's the point of marriage he's talking about. And it's reenacted in a wedding service. It's amazingly beautiful. And so that's some of what he's talking about there. I've got to read, there's just so much here, I'm probably going to cry again, but page 134, when two, yeah, I just basically said this, Um, romance, sex, laughter, and plain fun are the byproducts of this process of sanctification, refinement, glorification. Those things are important, but they can't keep the marriage going through the years and years of ordinary life. What keeps marriage going is your commitment to your spouse's 
holiness. You're committed to his or her beauty. You're committed to his greatness and perfection. You're committed to her honesty and passion for the things of God. That's your job as a spouse. Any lesser goal than that, any smaller purpose, and you're just playing at being married. I wonder how much we really think about that, even as Christians, like in, in what, we're, what we're doing. We're playing with fire, in a sense. And this is, of course, a message to the culture outside of the church. And this is what I was talking about and working with young people looking to get married. This is some really profound, is it, he calls it a game changer for how you go about discerning a spouse. He says on page 137, we think of a prospective spouse as primarily a lover or a provider. And if he or she can be a friend on top of that, well, isn't that nice? We should be going at it the other way around. Screen first for friendship. Look for someone who understands you better than you do yourself. I heard some of that in your answers, right? Who makes you a better person just by being around them. And then explore whether that friendship could become a romance and a marriage. That is a much wiser approach to, to marriage. And I think a culture around us, the church, would, would do very well to pick up on some of that wisdom. Have you noticed, if for those of you who are married, what he talks about the power of, of marriage? Um, what he says is that... Sorry. Um, or somebody outside. Uh, the power of marriage is what he's talking about in the next section, that it's, um, or I guess, sorry, the priority of it. I'm getting all out of whack here. Sorry, let me go back. <laughs> I just need to start over. <laughs> the priority of marriage and then the power of marriage? Okay, he goes, okay, he goes about that. Right, let's start with the power of marriage. I'm going to go out of order because if you're married, you know, when you marry somebody like that and you cultivate a friendship, uh, like you, you, he says nothing short of your spouse needs to be your best friend or on the way of doing that. And the power of that relationship, I love this. He says, marriage has the power to set the course for your whole life. <laughs> Who can relate to this? If your marriage is strong, even all the circumstances around you, if they're all filled with trouble and weakness, it won't matter. You'll be able to move out into the world in strength. However, if your marriage is weak, even all the circumstances, even if all the circumstances in your life around you are marked by success and strength, it also won't matter. You will, you will move out into the world in weakness. The incredible power of this friendship, when it's good, it has the power to be amazing that nothing else can seem to threaten. When it's bad, no amount of good stuff can ever appease it. Right, And this is the power. I think you sense this. Uh, Molly, you're here. And so uh, just the, the power of the words of your spouse. Really, I, I, I care about a lot of people's affection, attention, their words. I really like that sort of thing. I think all of us do on some level. But there's nothing quite like the words of your spouse even the smallest thing, it'll just send you spiraling and thinking about it or just cripple you if it goes poorly. And at the same time, this is what he's talking about. If you just get a positive, an authentic, positive word 
from this kind of relationship, boy, it can buoy you when you're not getting that anywhere else, which is kind of amazing. And so it, it has tremendous power to it, but he talks about the priority that we, it needs to have the priority. And this is why I love what we're about to do next, because uh, he goes into, at the end of this chapter, in the priority of marriage, Genesis chapter 2. And this is really all, one verse, Genesis 2.24, where it says, you must leave your father and mother and hold fast to your spouse, right? The whole book is based on that little bit right there. And Keller says, you know, we hear that, and maybe it's shocking to us today, but it would have been incredibly shocking in the traditional cultures that valued the social you know, commitments, the, the family was all important. And so right into the midst of these kind of patriarchal cultures, Genesis 2 says this, um, and it's God saying, I didn't put a parent and a child together in the garden. At the very beginning, he didn't create a relationship between a parent and a child. He put a husband and a wife. When you marry your spouse, that must supersede all other relationships, even the parental relationship. Your spouse and your marriage must be the number one priority in your life. Maybe we give lip service to that. Maybe people you know, really believe that. I, it took me a long time in my own marriage, seven years really, uh, before I realized I had not left my family at all, and in a sense, and we'll explain that in a second, but he's saying you can have all sorts of other things that eclipse this relationship. And some people in the world say those are, you should actually have a lot of other things out there that um, you are looking to. And there's a sense maybe that you know, you're not just consumed in this spousal relationship, but it is absolutely the priority. And so one of the things that Allender is going to be really good with as a, not just a theologian, but as a, a psychological counselor is going to help walk through all the ways that we don't even realize we're still connected. We have not left home. We have not left our parents. And that can look like Keller mentions, you know, being driven by your parents' wishes. So like the power, I mean, I always say this in premarital counseling, when you're about to get married, what has what would have holidays looked like in, in each of your lives? Let's talk about Christmas. That's coming up. And where are you going to go? And inevitably, one of them's like, I could never leave my parent. Like, we have, we have to be there no matter what or else, you know, or else, right? And then the other's like, wait a minute. Um, I don't either. They go along with it or it's like, I have the same thing. What are we going to do? And you're like, well, we don't have children yet, so maybe we can do both. We can travel, we can be there, and then it's like, okay, and then you have children, and then they expect to see the grandchildren at each of those things. You're like, this is getting out of control. Uh, he says, no. So that's one example where you maybe not even realize the, the values, the wishes of the parents have to be secondary to that of your spouse. And this was an amazing thing that he said, by definition, if your spouse doesn't think that you are their number one priority, or that they're your number one priority, then they're, then they're actually not. That was hard for me, because it's like, well, your definition, I'm sorry, Molly. Um, yeah, like, just, I, I have to share a little bit, but it's like, the times where I'm like, no, you're just misguided. I actually am giving you my full priority. And he's like, Kelly, I forget where he says it, but no, 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 priority 
is de- defined by the spouse, the other spouse. That's a, that's a big deal. I'm a slow learner, and I'm learning that as we go. I'm getting some head nods. This is great. So parents are a big thing, and you can be too driven by them, or you can be so, you haven't left parents if maybe you resent them, and you're living your life totally by rebuking, or by going against whatever they've said. You're still being controlled by that. Um, he lists another thing, the pseudo-spouse, not just of parents, the pseudo-spouse of children. You can be consumed by your children, and enmeshment, triangulation, those are kind of the psychological terms of what those dynamics look like. But if we look to our kids, and I think this is kind of, and I'd be curious if the secular world would agree that I, I think a lot of just like the worldly wisdom out there is, no, the, the parent-child relationship has to supersede the, the marriage. And he gives a great example of why that's just bunk. Uh, you will end up idolizing and giving everything for this child, but what the child needs most, and he says this was a game changer for this uh, case study he was looking at, this woman finally realized that what her, her child needed most was to see a healthy marriage being played out, uh, the priority of marriage, and then the parenting came next. So parents, kids, your career, your hobbies, all of these things can become pseudo-spouses that... Um, your spouse may identify as the thing that's taking precedent in the relationship. I saw, you know, talk about hobbies. This is a golf meme. I'm, I'm really into golf, but this nails it. This is, so Tom Brady, you know Tom? He's not playing in the Super Bowl today, which I'm thrilled about. Uh, I don't like Tom Brady. Or I don't like the Patriots, I guess, but he, it's where he played for most of the time. But he faked retirement last, or, you know, he said he retired. He didn't fake it, but, like, he retired, and then he came back, and along the way, he ended up getting divorced through it, and we don't, we can't really speak into it. But there was this meme that boy puts its finger right on, I think, a lot of what people I know have thought about or said. It said, uh, this is a golf meme that I saw on the internet, Tom Brady faking retirement last year to get divorced only to officially retire this year to play golf for the rest of his life is why he's the greatest of all time. (laughs) And we laugh at that, but could you have something more like contrary to what we're talking about? Like that's exactly, you know, that's the values is like, man, I just, you know, I'm gonna settle for whatever this relationship is and really just do all these other things, golf, fishing, boating, whatever it is. Like um, that's, that's the way the world Thanks, right? So it's, um, it's really, yeah. We, the priority, the power of marriage, we've talked about that. I used to say, there was this line, I say it a lot, of marriage isn't meant to make us happy, it's meant to make us holy. And this is the note that he ends on. He says, those aren't false choices. You can't, picking holiness doesn't mean you're losing out on happiness. In fact, it's, it's the way to find the real deepest happiness you were made for. Your holiness, your sanctification is part of becoming like Jesus. And the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in your life is part of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. Right? And so the deepest sort of happiness we can experience is produced not by looking to your spouse to be everything for you, but by seeing your task in partnering with God and making your spouse their future glory selves, as he calls it. 
but also recognizing that your own joy and happiness is going to be played out over the years while all these other things that maybe we looked for initially in a spouse start to wane and fade. He talks about looks and wealth. All of these things can be taken in a second. But deep friendship is something that takes a long time to cultivate but produces deep, profound... Oh, I thought it was 1035 for a second. That scared me to death. Uh, so we're going to end... Whew, that would have been bad because I'm preaching next. Uh, yeah, all right. So we'll, we're going to end. That's good on that chapter. Yeah, that's right. I don't know how Jeff does these things. He teaches and preaches in the same time, and I don't yet figure out how he keeps it straight. So, um, A Matrix of Marriage. That's the chapter. This is chapter three in The Intimate Mystery, Creating Strength and Beauty in Your Marriage by Dan Allender and Tremper Longman. Just a few things I want to point out before we talk a little bit at the end. So, interestingly enough, there's a lot of overlap between what we just heard and the purpose of marriage and then how we actually go about it. I, um, we're at a point in this book, The Meaning of Marriage by Keller, that he ends by saying, let me see if we can find... Now we are ready to get specific. How exactly can spouses help one another on this journey toward God? The answers will come in the next chapter, which I was like, perfect. This is when we're going to look at a different perspective, complementary perspective, of what it means to help one another grow into our future glory selves. And so he says in Genesis 2, 24... The, you must leave your father and mother and be, hold fast to your spouse. He says there's really three things. What we see, he calls it a matrix instead of like a road map, but it's essentially kind of like what's God's plan for helping you practically make one another into your future glory selves? And he lists three things. The first involves leaving, right? Just Keller talked about leaving your parents, and that is leaving all past loyalties, Forging trust in the relationship. And so this was, interestingly, in the ancient Near East, it wasn't necessarily physical or geographical or even financial. Oftentimes they'd get married and they'd be in the same house together with external family, but it was very clear where the boundaries were. Who was whose, right? And so the extended families in the ancient Near East, like it was very clear that even though they may be together... And that was just a completely different culture than we are today. Um, their loyalties lie primarily with each other. And so it's about, we'll talk about next week, is going deeper into what does it mean to actually leave all these other loyalties. That's next week. Then the week after that, we'll look at weaving, you know, um, you must leave your father and mother, hold fast to your spouse. Weaving, holding fast, happens through communication. It's all about building intimacy. And he's not talking about physical intimacy just yet. He devotes a whole chapter to that. But he's talking about all intimacy uh, before even we get to sex. He says communication is, is basically the lubrication of sex. It's, the, it's what connects our hearts, which is what ultimately makes good sex great, he will say. And so it's all about intimacy together. He gives this image. Uh, he speaks very... Oh, it's pungently? That's not even a word. He speaks, like, sharply 
dramatically. If you've ever heard him in person, you know what I mean. But he gives this image. He says, imagine that you and your spouse are in this backwoods cabin and there's snow piled up and there's a roaring fire inside. There's plenty of provisions. What do you then do next as a married couple in, in there? And he says, if you go to check your phone or your email or if you're going to work on a project, you should shoot yourself is what he says. And as I was reading this, we were away on an anniversary celebration, and I read that, and I'm like, I'm not going to take what he says literally here, but the reality is sometimes we can, you know, he's like, actually, what you need to be doing, um, well, and he says, if you actually end up roaring na- uh, rolling around naked together, great. But what happens before, what happens after? And he's saying it's communication, it's talking to one another. Um, no, that, and if you're in the baby hole like we are, yeah, we we took naps. I, we, or children or all that, whatever. Um, yeah, sleep is is a wonderful thing, right? But like, if all you're doing is sleeping and not talking, you get the point, right? It's all about creating intimacy through talking. And so the, that next week we'll look at the importance and the practicalities of communication. I love what he says in this chapter. He says, such uh, conversation is the creation of ideas, plans, and dreams. It's allowing words to be an imaginary path on which we walk before we plunge into the maelstrom of reality. It is talk, but talk that links our hearts because we speak with freedom, confidence, and pleasure in a way that we could not and should not with anyone else. The heartache of many marriages is that it is easier to have a meaningful curious, playful discussion with a stranger on a plane than with one's own spouse. And often this tragedy comes a failure to leave, it it comes because of a failure to leave one's parents and one's past. It can also arise due to a failure to bless the differences between one another. A woman talks, thinks, feels, and is different from a man, and a man is different from a woman in the same ways. Sadly, the differences that should unite us are rather the ones that are allowed to divide us. They provoke contempt and not wonder. So the last chapter, cleaving, hold fast uh, to your wife and become one flesh. That one flesh is the chapter he's going to talk about cleaving, uniting. Yes, he's going to talk about sex, but even more he's going to be looking at, we are different, and we're meant to delight in our differences. And that's a picture of what, what sex really is. So on that note, we... Um, all right, we should go. It's 10.15. I saw people leave it. So, all right, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of our spouses if we are married. We thank you for the wonder of what marriage is and what it points us to. We thank you that these deep friendships can be had even outside of marriage if, if we're single. We thank you that um, the ultimate picture is this relationship we have with you. Help us in our marriages, in our um, path for seeking a spouse to use your word and your wisdom to guide us, that we may live into this, um, this crucible of marriage that refines us to make us holy and ultimately the deepest form of happiness that we can have. Help us in the weeks ahead as we start to get really practical in how we actually do that, to do it with gentleness and compassion as we talk about things, as we're maybe getting to that point where things are really starting to kind of prick us in our marriages, would you, by your Spirit, safeguard us that we may come away more whole, 
healthy and happy because of your work in our lives to make you like yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.